welcome back to the Ocean Embassy and the second part of the first installment of a multi-part series on ocean-based carbon capturing. If you haven't listened to the first part of these two episodes, go listen to that part first because otherwise this one won't, won't look. This one won't make any sense. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not going to give a huge introduction. Everything has been said in the first episode. Let's just dive right back in, now focusing on the policy side of the promise of blue carbon. Knowing the different backgrounds of all the co-authors, can you explain why the expertise that is reflected by the co-authors is actually so necessary and so important for this whole promise of blue carbon? I think that it's because like, so the, the, the good thing about our group of authors is that we come from different backgrounds and all of us understand the science to a, like, to a different degree, right? And, and some of us are into the policy sphere. So, and I think that when we, we live in a time that we are constantly hearing the importance of science-based solutions, science-informed policies, and that's very important. We need the science, but we need to understand that science is not enough and that the science needs to be translated into real policies that can be accomplished. And just by listening to the science, we are not going to fix this conundrum. And and I think that that was the interesting part of our group, that we had people that were super into the science. They had a great knowledge about the science, but we also had the policy side and we were also seeing that some of the science was not able to be completely translated or not yet into the policy. And up to a certain degree, this is what we see in real life, right? Like there's there's some promising science in some topics like blue carbon, but you need certain information to be able to translate this into a policy that is going to have an effect, a positive effect. And and I think that that's the beauty of multidisciplinary um, teams, basically. And and I think that this could be an example of what it could be, you know, working for a government, for instance, like, because I think that we learn a lot from each other in this group, because I, despite I am a marine biologist by training, there's a lot about the science of blue carbon that I didn't know because it falls more into the physics and not into the biology. And I learned a ton about, about blue carbon. And at the same time, I remember talking to Ana Cabré and she doesn't really work in the policy sphere and she has not that much experience in the policy sphere and talking to her about like, well, but this is not translatable into a policy. And she was also shocked. So I think that it is very important to, to, to really think about these collaborations from multidisciplinary approaches because you learn from each other and that, that is when you realize what you really need to be able to um, not fix because I don't want to use the word fix, but like to be able to, to find a, a positive outcome. The group was really interesting because we everyone in the group has PhDs in science but some of us work very clearly in policy 
And so there's this idea of bringing more science into policymaking and having science-based decision-making. But then I think we need to talk a lot more about the reverse of bringing policy into science as well. And for scientists to really question where they um, or why they're doing the research that they're doing and what sort of questions they can be answering that would benefit policymakers, especially as we know that we are on such a short timeline to address climate change. Scientists really need to be asking the type of questions that policymakers need answered in order to make these science-based decisions that will benefit humanity, that will benefit marine conservation, and that will address climate change uh, on the time frame that is necessary. So if I interpret that, are you essentially saying that sometimes even questions that are attractive or interesting to scientists on a, um, on a long-term basis or on a long-term scale might need to be held back in favor of questions that are going to um, accelerate climate, climate legislation now and um, help implementing faster, help faster implementation of, for example, blue carbon efforts, even though that might not immediately benefit the science or Or do you think that, that they will benefit from each other anyway? I think they both benefit from each other. But I think a lot of times, because there is a lack of policy liter literacy within the science community, they don't understand what kind of data is useful for policymakers to have to make their decisions. And they also, as we addressed in our paper, don't necessarily understand all of the different policy frameworks that their science can support. And, I, and this is one of the reasons that we wrote this paper was because we saw a lot of research trying to fit the results into the UNFCCC framework. So the, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, we saw a lot of papers trying to fit the results into how they can benefit nations in, within that specific policy mechanism. And that's not necessarily helpful. Their research isn't necessarily helpful for in that context and is better applied and their data is better applied and results are better applied in various other policy frameworks. What would you say are the current diplomatic mechanisms and frameworks to achieve blue carbon activities? So whether that is restoration, conservation, or actually new ocean-based carbon capturing methodologies even, what is the general framework for policy to assess blue carbon? Well, you know, climate change is kind of the hot topic. So I think that's one of the reasons why scientists want their results to be relevant to the climate change debate. But a lot of the results are really beneficial to conservation frameworks. So the Convention on Biological Diversity or the UN's effort to um, protect marine ecosystems on the high seas um, or potentially regional bodies, regional uh, multilateral bodies like CAMLAR, which governs the Southern Ocean uh, and the Arctic Council, and then regional fisheries management councils as well. So understanding that not everything um, needs to be put into the framing of climate change, of the UNFCCC, of nationally determined contributions or payment for ecosystem services or payment for carbon. Um, I think that that is one of the ways that interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary work and groups like um, the group of authors that wrote this paper 
can be beneficial in terms of understanding both sides of an issue and how um, marine conservation work is more most applicable in different in different framings. So I think that right now in blue carbon right now, as Anne was saying, focuses very much on coastal ecosystems like mangroves, for instance. And most of the official blue carbon projects, let's call them, that are um, active in the world right now, they are in coastal ecosystems. So there's these new studies being published in the past couple of years about blue carbon in other ecosystems like the high seas or Antarctica and and also related with marine biodiversity like um, commercial fisheries and whales um, and and right now the information that we have, only allow us to regulate coastal ecosystems and not that much about the rest. And even coastal ecosystems, we need to think about them not only from the blue carbon perspective, but also from the, from the other services that they provide to the communities. And I think that this is the main point that we were making, which is um, we need to think about which... Oh, Anne is texting me. The electricity went out. <laughs> Poor thing. <laughs> um, so I'm sorry about that. I interrupted the whole the whole flow. <laughs> but basically, is that ecosystem services are important, and ecosystem services are not only the absorption of carbon. Ecosystem services of a mangrove, for instance, is that mangroves are nurseries for fishes that are commercial. They also uh, provide, um, you know, they, they stop the waves. Uh, so they provide a little bit of protection when there is a um, storm. Um, so there's a lot of other things that we need to take into consideration when we start a, a um, uh, ocean conservation project. And if we only think from the blue carbon perspective, then we are not regulating from the other ecosystem services perspective. So the main, like one of the things that we were highlighting was whales, right? Because everybody is selling now whales as if you don't, if, if you leave the whales in the ocean, this is how much money they can generate in terms of carbon absorption. And what we were saying was like, well, whales are very difficult to regulate. I think that it's calculated that a whale crosses 53 borders in its journey around the world. So how are you going to regulate something that crosses 53 states, right? <laughs> so... And, and so it's, and also there's a lot of questions about, okay, so if we think about a whale only from the blue carbon perspective, who owns that carbon? Which country owns the carbon that the whale is absorbing? And also how much carbon is for real capture for the whale? And then the whale 
dies and the corpse sink and how much of that carbon that the whale accumulating during its life goes to the bottom of the ocean and doesn't go back to the whole carbon cycle. So it's, we don't know, you know, there's a lot of different studies say different things. So I think that it is important to think about a whale from the umbrella perspective right? There's this umbrella species. So a whale is an umbrella species, but we cannot think of a whale. What do you mean with that, with, with an umbrella species? An, um, an umbrella species is like, you know, like pandas, these iconic species that by protecting ah. this cute, iconic species, a you are protecting mm -hmm. other things yeah. at the same time. Yeah, that might not be <laughs> that cute, you know, <laughs> but that are also very important. So, so that's an okay. umbrella species. But at the same time, you know, what we talked about also in the other recording is, um, can you really even say that by leaving an animal alone that is inherent and has its natural habitat in the ocean, we are creating additional carbon storage? Like, this is the, the issue of additionality where we are talking about, um, okay, Which, how much of a whale living in the ocean and taking carbon to the bottom of the sea is actually carbon that, had we not invested into efforts, would not have saved this, 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 this amount of carbon. And I think with whales, especially, and I think you highlighted this very well in the paper, with especially animals and the biological pump, it is almost impossible to include that in carbon credit frameworks because it's not really carbon that is saved in addition to to what it would have saved anyways if we simply not had not killed them or destroyed their their habitats etc so i think there there needs to be an a differentiation between okay we are creating what you wrote about um We are, we are investing into marine conservation and restoration efforts and, for example, creating marine protected areas, which then allow species to, to recover, species like the whales to store a lot of carbon and to keep the biological pump working. But that is not additional carbon, really, and that is also carbon that is, as you said, incredibly hard to, to, to monitor and to, to quantify. Um, and this is actually the, the the efforts that will probably have the most effect. If we are, it, it's a lot more um, sensible probably to invest in conservation and um, preservation than into destroying all the mangroves, but then growing a bunch of kelp in the ocean. Like that's not going to to balance each other out. Um, but if we are yeah. talking and so looking I think at, um, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say that I think that this is exactly the key. If you are going to talk about blue carbon from the climate change solution perspective, the key word is additionality. And you cannot talk about blue carbon without talking about additionality. And that's the whole case of a whales, right? And because like how yeah. much carbon in addition to the carbon that they naturally store are yeah. whales going to absorb if we leave them and this is one of the key things about papers that um, talk about whales as a climate solution that is they are always talking from the perspective of going back to uh, to pre-whaling numbers 
and mm-hmm. going back to prevailing numbers is not that easy. And yeah, and and it's not that easy. And and you and you re- like requires a lot of other policies, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to mm-hmm. go back to pre-whaling numbers, and and nobody says that when they talk about whales from that perspective, they present whales as like, oh, if you leave a whale in the ocean, blah blah blah, which mm-hmm. is true, you know, but like, but they always forget to add, and this would be a climate solution from the perspective of going back to the pre-whaling uh, numbers, and yeah. they don't talk about all the policies that you need to be able to go back to the pre-whaling numbers, yeah. so it's, yeah. so we, they, just to be clear, we are not saying kill the whales in our no, paper. Of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're saying and, that but protecting and preserving marine habitats um, and blue blue carbon storages such as um, mangroves or whales, etc., is absolutely necessary. But it's not directly an effort that should be accounted through carbon credits. Or yeah. am I understanding? You yeah, correctly? and also <laughs> you know, like I, I think that another important piece of information is that um, everybody. Thank goodness now everybody semi understands or understands the the complexity around climate change. And climate change is all over the news, front page, is in family conversations, is in books, is in schools. Uh, but at the same time, we have another crisis that we cannot forget, and is the biodiversity loss crisis. So if we frame every policy around climate change, we are completely blindsided because there is another side of another environmental crisis that is also happening at the same time and that we it's going to have huge consequences also on food security for instance and and we also need to regulate or to design policies that have in perspective not one but all the environmental crisis and that can be anticipating what else is going to happen in the future. And that's the thing about policy and science, right? Science is more about like, this is what is happening. This is how it functions. And and you can have some predictions, but when you design a policy, you need to design a policy based on the science, but also taking into consideration a little bit of the future and it's not it's very tricky it's difficult but you need to anticipate what is going to happen so by only focusing on the climate change solution perspective in this particular case because of our paper around blue carbon we are forgetting other environmental issues that also need regulation and that they are also very important like biodiversity and that's why we are making our case around Yes, blue carbon as a climate solution, but ecosystem services are also important. And we also need to be regulated, regulating from the perspective of the other ecosystem services that are equally, if not more important. And I think this is a mic drop for you because you have a meeting, right? <laughs> yeah, I have a meeting in one minute. Boom. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> that that was that was great. That was perfect. Um, yeah, thank you, Alicia. Okay. Um, I I think did did Anne say anything else? Oh, thank you. 
Oh, she texted while I was talking. Let me see. Uh, this is cursed, and now I'm roasting. Is that what she said? <laughs> now I'm roasting? What does that mean? Oh, it's too warm. I don't really know what she meant by that. But... Okay. But she cannot sign back on? I don't think so. Okay. And, I, like, before, you know, when it was just you and mm -hmm. me talking, and I said, this mm -hmm. podcast episode is cursed. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. We'll we'll get this done somehow. Talk to you soon. <laughs> bye. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure yeah. we will. <laughs> bye, bye bye. So, as an info to the audience, at this point, um, we are actually starting the third recording with Anne again a day after the actual recording because um, her internet stopped working. Unfortunately, these these answers are therefore um, potentially a bit repetitive, but nonetheless very informative. So. Um, here is a semi-professional, weird, um, introduction fusion of two recordings that should have been recorded at the same time. <laughs> so regarding the topic I talked about last with Alicia before she had to go to her meeting, um, and before you dropped out, <laughs> um, And that would be the topic of additionality and the difficulty of determining where and how much carbon was actually saved in addition to what would have been sequestered anyways. Um, and I'm wondering what do you think is the work that needs to be done both on the scientific and policy side to actually accelerate these carbon valuation frameworks? And do you think it is even um, possible at this point? Or where do we need to place priorities in order to, to realize it? We need to differentiate between different blue carbon uh, ecosystems first. So the coastal ecosystems that we talked about before, which are mangroves, seagrass, and salt marshes, those do have the science behind them to adequately measure, monitor, and manage the blue carbon in those systems so that it can be counted towards countries' nationally determined contributions, which are their climate change goals. So. That is very different from a lot of the emerging conversations around blue carbon um, with mobile species such as whales and fish and with kelp as well. And so absolutely, we need more science in some of these areas because what we have right now is not adequate to support their inclusion in these um, carbon measurement frameworks. But with the coastal systems, we do have that knowledge I think what needs to be uh, supported and what we need to work to do better at is ensuring that the very technical expertise that is needed to actually count this carbon and to manage it correctly uh, is available no matter what country wants to use it. So right now, um, because it is so technical and the resources that are needed to measure it are relatively high, Countries such as the United States are really driving from the government level the ability to manage this and monitor this blue carbon in a way that can support their NDCs. Small interception here. NDCs are nationally determined contributions, which are the efforts of a country to reduce national emissions and to adapt to the impacts of climate change, which are defined within the Paris Agreement. Other countries where a lot of this blue carbon Uh, is in, can benefit from 
technology transfer from support, um, scientific support and research support of countries that have more advanced and um, more formulated policies that in place that they are able to use to to include this type of um, accounting within their within their country climate goals. With with technical assistance, you mean literally technology and engineered mechanisms to actually measure and support the science we are looking for. Um, I don't know if I would characterize it as engineered, um, but it it can be as simple as um, the correct data collection techniques and the support for how much. Um, actual human hours are needed to do this type of work. Yeah, I'm I'm just thinking from an engineer perspective. I'm thinking that a lot of platforms that are needed to do this are technology platforms. So that is what I meant um, with engineering ah. solutions. <laughs> but but yeah, I think too that one of the hardest problems with blue carbon is reliably measuring and allocating that to a specific activity and not counting the same carbon twice. But what you described now, I would say was, um, or, or I can see how that activity can be specific to one coastline or country. But do you see any possibilities for these carbon capturing activities to actually take place on the high seas where it is impossible to allocate a carbon credit to a country because there are no countries? So how do you see that transforming? So that issue is where we get into this really sticky situation of double counting. And we want to make sure that there's, we, we would love, we, <laughs> the Royal, we would love if countries would do more conservation on the high seas and do more conservation in these areas like the Southern Ocean that is um, overseen by a multilateral body. It would be great if nations were able to come together and do that without quote unquote credit for doing it, without being able to need the the motivation of their NDCs or need the motivation of um, getting carbon credits if they recognize that this is to the benefit of marine ecosystems, this is to the benefit of human communities around the world and took it upon themselves to uh, protect blue carbon sources uh, in these areas. That would be wonderful. I don't believe there is a policy mechanism right now that would allow countries to um, count blue carbon in these regions that is not at risk for double counting. And we, I mean, double count, as soon as you monetize nature, as soon as you monetize nature, as soon as you um, use nature as a way to meet goals uh, internationally, there is the risk of greenwashing. There is the risk of double counting. So when we speak about blue carbon in these When we speak about blue carbon in these areas where there's multiple jurisdictional issues, I think that that can get into a very fraught environment very quickly. Okay, so now we are talking about governments pursuing these activities within multi-jurisdictional areas. Do you see this happening for companies as well? I mean, I'm not sure what the jurisdiction is, but could, say, private companies simply go to the high seas and entertain blue carbon activities and say, I have captured so and so much CO2 here and sell that as a carbon credit? Or is that not possible at the moment? You know, I haven't heard of that happening or of companies um, attempting to do this yet. 
that doesn't mean it's not happening. I just, I just haven't come across that. Uh, I wouldn't put it past any entity that has a monetary incentive um, to, to go after carbon credits uh, if they saw it as in their best interest and to game the system in that way. I think that what the paper that we wrote shows is how very, very complicated carbon storage is in marine environments. And so again, the ability for an entity to truly measure how the additional carbon captured by some sort of intervention would be extraordinarily difficult on the high seas. Yeah, I think there is a lot of development and thought going on behind that. And moving towards um, the end of the questions, I'm wondering if we can look a little into the future and talk about what you think are the priorities and what is necessary to do now. Because the, the background of that question for me is that to me, science and research was quite, um, or always has quite a um, longevity attached to it, as in to really conduct meaningful research that is done correctly with control mechanisms, etc., that has taken all factors into consideration, we need quite a lot of months, if not years. But if we're looking at the climate crisis, we need to act so much more quickly. So what do you think is needed to accelerate the science at this point without losing the credibility in order to really meet the demands of the climate crisis as soon as we can? Well, the first thing we need is a major increase in climate funding. And there is a huge gap in climate financing, both on the mitigation side and on the adaptation side. And blue carbon falls in both of those areas. Um, coastal ecosystems, of course, sequester carbon and can help on the mitigation side, whereas uh, they also um, are provide enormous benefits for adaptation as well, both in terms of attenuating severe weather and, and coastal climate impacts, as well as supporting coastal communities um, via infrastructure, via food security, uh, via clean water. So we have seen governments around the world fail, especially developed nations fail again and again in providing adequate climate finance, both at home and for developing nations and emerging economies. So we just need a massive increase in climate financing. We need to leverage private capital as well. And that can go towards both increasing the amount of science and accelerating the science, and then, but also accelerating the ability to um, innovate technologically, to be able to measure blue carbon, uh, to be able to put in place monitoring and management um, that supports local communities and that takes into account the needs of local communities, in particular uh, areas where We have um, local and indigenous perspectives and including these, these groups and this knowledge into the management of coastal blue carbon. And so I think that really the number one thing that is needed in addressing climate change is an increase in climate financing. Um, secondarily, we just need governments to have the political will and the political capital to um, take on the very sticky problem of emissions reduction, because no matter how much we want nature-based solutions to be, quote unquote, the solution to climate change, it's just one of the many tools that are needed. And we really need emissions reduction across sectors, across transportation, energy, manufacturing, and that needs to happen on such short timescales. 
and as you mentioned before, we have these we have these problems of having um, we're having long term we need long term science, but we need short term results, and we have all of these different competing timeframes because we have politicians working on one to two year timeframes of reelection, and then we have we need to be reducing emissions by 2030, which is now just eight years away. But then we have all of this long-term data that points to trends at, for 2050 and 2100. And so we have all of these conflict, conflicting timeframes that I think are really difficult for both scientists and policymakers to wrap their heads around of how we can talk to each other to do what, exactly what you said, which is accelerate um, these solutions and these interventions to address climate change. Yeah, and and I mean, I keep being really frustrated and, and scared by the time frame of the latest IPCC report saying we need to peak emissions in the next three years. And it's such a short time frame, it is almost impossible. But I think you highlight very well how the interdisciplinary work and interdisciplinary sectors and means of studying, researching, etc., can accelerate and help that, especially in the oceanic sphere. Well, it was very much needed. Well, it was so fascinating working with these group of women because we were so interdisciplinary. We were global, yet it was still so, in, and even though we knew each other beforehand, we came from the same network. We all had backgrounds in ocean, in ocean work and ocean science. It was still so difficult to bridge the gaps between the hard science, the biogeochemistry, and then the policy pieces. And I think we all learned a lot from this experience. And we talked about how these conversations, sometimes we were talking past each other for weeks at a time before we started to understand what um, our co-authors needed and what our co-authors were trying to explain and how that fit into these different policy buckets and how we should get our message across. So it was, it was really a fascinating, fascinating exercise and underscores just how extremely difficult it is to do this type of multidisciplinary work. Yeah. And I think if, if, if I can add to that, something that really led me to quitting my job and one of the motivations for the job I'm now entering is I want to understand what scientists and policymakers require from technology development so that I can address that conflict. But of course, that also stands then in conflict with what I might personally be interested in doing or what I think um, is the technological advancement that is absolutely required. And maybe that isn't what scientists think is needed. So that is why now more than ever, it is so important to align those goals and to understand what is needed in order to at least have a chance to address these challenges within the timeframes we mentioned. Absolutely. And one of the reasons this podcast episode was so cursed was because of climate change. <laughs> you know, the, the electrical bid, yeah, the electrical grid in Paris shut down during a heat wave. So, I mean, climate change is happening now, and that's a, just another, another part of this timeline of why we need such rapid action and such rapid emissions reduction. Yeah, and for example, today in Berlin, this large forest fire broke out um, for really unnecessary reasons. But um, it's it's really that, yeah, it's simply really that's, getting close. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, we aren't ready. 
It was really great to chat with you so many times. So many times. times. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I will have a lot of editing to do. Well, I'm delighted. I'm delighted to finally have this conversation. (laughs) We did it. Woohoo. We did it. Congrats. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So that was the first episode of my series on ocean-based carbon capturing technologies. And um, I hope your interest was sparked. I find this a really, really, really interesting topic. It's so manifold. It has so many different perspectives. And speaking of different perspectives, the next episode, which will not take as long as this one to to be published because it's already recorded, (laughs) um, will be actually with someone who is combining and embodying that interdisciplinary work of being a marine scientist and an entrepreneur realizing ocean-based carbon capturing in the real world. Uh, I will not tell you who it is. Stay tuned. It'll be really interesting and um, argumenting against some of what we heard today. Looking forward to hearing from you. Please let me know if you have any comments, feedback, anyone you think I should absolutely invite to this podcast who would want to be on it and looking forward to welcome you the next time. Thanks for listening.